Hello, and welcome to the Empowerography Podcast. This is a platform created for women's voices to be heard and a place to share their stories, journeys, and successes with the world for the purpose of helping other women who might be on similar journeys. We are empowering women one episode at a time. I'm your host, Brad Walsh, so kick back, grab one of your favorite beverages, and enjoy the stories. The world needs to hear your message and your story, so don't deny the world of that gift within you that the universe has given you. Someone out there needs to hear your story because it will support them in feeling hope, inspired, and even transformed. Do you want to discover how I help get my clients out of their own way, show up, and confidently share their message? I would love to extend an invitation to you to join me in my free masterclass, Start Your Own Podcast from Idea to Implementation, on Wednesday, April 5th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can find the registry link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Hello there, Brad Walsh here, your host of the Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Cheryl Lentz. She is known as the academic entrepreneur, a university professor, a TEDx speaker, an international best-selling author, and a consultant. Welcome, Cheryl. It is so wonderful to have you here. I'm so happy that we're finally getting to do this. Exactly. How are you today? I'm doing well. I've been waiting for this podcast for weeks now, and I'm just so excited to be here. So thank you for the honor. This is going to be a good time. My pleasure and my honor. It is so great to finally have you here, and I'm looking forward to diving in and sharing all about the beautiful magic you put out into the world through the work you do and for sharing your personal story and your journey. So with that being said, let us jump right in. As I said, you wear all of those hats, and you have quite the extensive resume. How on earth do you find the time for all of this, and how do you prioritize, and how important is prioritization and organization to you? Oh boy. My systems are pretty much what I spend a lot of time honing. The ability to look at how do you get everything done in there? I have a time management system. Matter of fact, every day I wake up and I've got, it's really old school, quite frankly. (laughs) People are not going to be terribly impressed when the fact that I go to the dollar store every single year and I get my two calendars, just one as a backup. I used to spend a dollar. Now they're a dollar fifty, so I've upgraded just a little bit. But that was something, and here's why. It was probably, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years ago in there that I lost every place on where I needed to be because my computer ate my whole thing. It just dysfunctioned and it just blew up. And then it was like for three weeks I had no idea where I was supposed to be. I was not intentionally trying to annoy people. I literally <laughs> didn't have a backup. And I'm the queen of backups because I trusted tech, right? right? So now I have old school and old school works because unless I lose it or set it on fire or pour water on it, it blurs <laughs> the fact that I have it. But the system only works if you work the system. So I have to put everything in there. And this is part of what I teach my students as well is once we write it down, it takes the stress off. I can go to sleep at night not wondering where I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to be in the Rediver. As long as it's that little book, I woke up this morning. It's like, all right, I knew your podcast. I had a meeting before this. I've got a meeting yeah. after this. Ding, ding. Now I don't know. I can just focus all my energy and all of that. You call it magic. I'll bring out my magic wand if we need to. <laughs> yes. Um, but that's what keeps me organized. And without it, I don't know how people do it by the seat of their pants. I use tech as the backup this way. I get the nice little warnings and the nice yeah. little, oh, Matt, Brad's coming today kind of yeah. thing. And I love that. But I use it as an in addition to, not instead of. And it always yeah. Made me nervous that you and I were talking beforehand. Tech scares me a little bit. I didn't yeah. grow up with tech, so I'm still a little old school. And just as a point, old school still works. That's right. I'm still a fan of writing things down with a pen and paper or pencil and paper. And that way you have that record of that. And yes, the digital version, sure, have that as a backup. But I'm, I agree with you. I'm still a fan of the 
old school method of writing things down. And what you don't see them. is all the post-it notes around the room. <laughs> <laughs> and the notes on the mirror and the notes yeah. in the refrigerator and just the backups for backups, but it's all there and it still works. And I still teach some of my students. I'm like, wow. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not reinventing the wheel here. No. Well, it's a fail safe, right? I mean, right. like you said, unless it catches fire, you drop water on it and it smudges and it, you're good to go. Or exactly. you lose the piece of paper. Well, and that's part of why I kept it in a central system because I am no, I have checklists for my checklist, but if I can't find the checklist, I'm kind of out of luck. So if I have a central place, kind of like yeah. when I come home, I know exactly where my keys are. And if I put yep. them there, I know where they are every time. It's when I get really stressed out and things are going, you got to work the system. Because yeah. if not, suddenly my keys end up in the refrigerator and that's not a good place to find them. <laughs> it is definitely not a good place for your keys. <laughs> Oh, I've seen some really things. Anytime things are not where they ought to be, I know I'm doing a little more stressful things and I need to kind of lighten up and go with the kayak or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So these are funny, interesting. It's like, oh, so the keys are in the refrigerator. Hmm. I think it's time for a little break. Yes. <laughs> so Cheryl, I'm very curious with you wearing so many hats, what does your morning routine look like? For example, this morning, I am usually an early riser. I'm tied in with the sun, at least in the summer hours when we have, what, nine or 10 hours of daylight. Yeah. I'm typically up as soon as I do. And I also have a Siberian Husky who has regular schedule. So I'm up somewhere usually between 5.30 and 6. And then I do my little routine with her and I kind of get an idea to set the intention. But the intention is set by meditation first. I have got to be able to set my day. I just can't come up unless I've slept in and my alarms didn't go off, which I really don't even have alarms very often. I just naturally wake up at this particular right. time. I have trouble in the wintertime. When that sun comes up later, I'll tell you, when it goes to bed earlier, my winters mm -hmm. look very different than my summers. So I'm I am very sure. high energy, but that's where I get some of the stuff. But I typically start with the meditation. I got to get my mind right because yeah. the Susie sunshine that y'all see doesn't happen <laughs> by accident. It's a choice. And that yeah. was the long thing I learned a long time ago. Happiness is a choice. Leadership is a choice. Attitude is a choice. Being grumpy is a choice. Yeah. And expecting to have it. Now, it doesn't always turn out as we expect and that the universe likes to screw with me and yes. has a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be prepared and I have lots of contingency plans. If by 11 o'clock I'm on plan F, it's going to be a really long day. <laughs> <laughs> Is the meditation a non-negotiable for you? Um, no, but I notice that if I don't do it, it kind of sets me off. Like if I'm traveling, Mm -hmm. Or if like on the weekends, I might not do it as often or I displaced it because I actually have like I do yoga tonight where I find yoga is better as a group meditation with exercise. I can't do yoga by myself. I have a meditation I try to do on weekends, but I often have plans on weekends in the summertime. But I find that group meditation has a different dynamic to it. I yeah. also have a meditation partner that he okay. and I will connect sometimes, maybe once a month or something. And so each one of those is a different experience. So as long as I do something, but the meditation in the morning really is to, how do you have an intentional, you're going to have a great day. Yeah. You're going to look at it. Mondays, I especially have to meditate because significant things happen for me on Mondays. And I have to really get a sense of humor because Mondays are never predictable. Ever. <laughs> <laughs> and they're always good, but they just don't look like I expect. And that's, I think, the hardest part for me is I have a picture in my mind. I'm visual. Yeah. And sometimes I need to not have that picture because if that picture doesn't happen then I have expectations that are disappointed I can sure. just go with the flow and just find and embrace joy in the weirdest of places sometimes <laughs> I'm better off but the minute I have that this is how I think my day is going to do the universe is like oh you know the end of the story girl I ain't gonna happen anywhere close to that so why do you even try and I'm like I, I can't okay I can't okay 
the joke's on me universe. Exactly. (laughs) But it's funny because the universe will try and every time I ignore something, he's kept stepping it up until it starts Mm -hmm. screaming. I'm like, all right, I get it. I get it, uncle. So it's just kind of part of it. Exactly. (laughs) And I was never that good because in some of my stories, it's really difficult that I never heard the universe telling me these messages before. And that frightened me, the fact that this was all coming at me and had been for the whole time. And I wasn't listening or I couldn't hear it or both. So now when it screws with me, I used to think that my angels, my guardian angels and all those folks didn't exist. Oh no, they're just permanently a happy hour. <laughs> and so I just kind of belly up to the bar and say, all right, boys and girls, if here. Them, you can't beat them, join them. But that was something that up until I did my TED talk and some of the things that happened to me, I never realized the efforts the universe was making, whether through you and some of the wonderful things we're going to talk about today that are yeah. like, oh, there's a message for me. There's a nugget if you're paying attention. Yeah. They're around you. But I didn't hear them. And so I was wondering, is my receiver not tuned? Did I not have patterns? Was I not paying attention? Meditation helps me zone into that and also have a little bit more self-confidence in some of the things. Because I'll tell you, there were times that I'm like, man, that white truck's going to take me away. No one. (laughs) Now I'm like, you know what? Now I understand it's just normal and not everybody can hear it. And it's an honor and a blessing. So long as you just to have that perspective that you keep things light and you stay in the present moment, but yourself too seriously. Very true. Life is short. Have Absolutely. as much fun as you no possibly regrets. can. That fat That's lady since not singing until I meet her at the pearly gates. I'm just saying. <laughs> Cheryl, what drives, motivates, and inspires you to keep going and excelling at all that you do? Ooh, boy, there's a $64,000 question. I can offer two answers. Mm-hmm. Before it used to be that I had a high drive for accolades. I have got a wall full of awards and degrees and all kinds of the proverbial I love me wall, right? And there was yeah. a time in my life that I equated my sense of accomplishment with my self-worth. Now I've disconnected those two and I no longer need it. Sometimes it's nice to have that ego kind of put in there, but I want to be able to do this because because of that feeling that it makes me feel good, not because I need it as a validation point. And I'm still working on that because I'm one of those salutatory and validatory. Everyone's going, yeah, Cheryl, we get it. And I'm like, and it wasn't meant to be that way, yeah. but I internalized it and connected them. And now that I've disconnected and that motivation is, for example, I talked to a student today and it could have been a difficult conversation because it was a difficult topic. And to hear the student laugh, I knew I had him because it was a matter of, he goes, yeah, you, I wasn't expecting you. I'm like, I know you weren't. That's why I'm trying to be able to do it. He said, this is amazing. Even though it wasn't, he's not doing well yet in my class. And so that's how I can tell if if you can put somebody at ease with difficult conversation, you can have that connection. That's what I look like. Because I guarantee you that student is now singing my praises and that's not what I need. But the fact is he now has a positive experience and his whole attitude is going to shift. And now he's going to do better because one person reached out to him. One person heard him. He goes, Cheryl, you know, Dr. C, this is what they call me. He says, this is interesting. The fact that you're the first person that's taken the time. And sometimes that screws up my schedule. I will tell you, I am someone who likes my schedule meticulous. If you are going to be there at 11 o'clock, I expect you at 11 o'clock, not at 1130, unless you talk to me about this. And I have open office hours. So students can call me randomly. I swear it's like a deli counter. There's some days that I'm thinking I have six stacked and racked and waiting to get to each one. And I get stressed about that. But knowing that for that student, I want to turn off the world. And just like this podcast, you were the 
only thing that I'm focusing on right now. And you have my undivided love, devotion, attention that I can bring everything with my A game. I used not to do that. I used to have to worry about that stacked and racked. I'm like, oh, no, every experience has to have it. And so I smile now because that student's smiling all day. And I know because I made a different experience for him than his previous ones with his previous faculty. And it's not to throw my faculty under the bus, but I know sometimes I was less than personable and charming. Sometimes I was very transactional and very, what do you need? What's your answer? Let's go for it. Now it's the, I got to start with that magic, as you call it first, that whole feeling. Because no one remembers what you said, but they always remember how you made them feel. That's right. So that's my focus because they're telling me their symptoms. What Mm -hmm. I'm really hearing is I'm lost. I'm hurting. I need someone to hear that voice in the darkness to get me back on track and to listen and know that I'm here. We just want to be visible. And so to hear him smile, he goes, I wasn't expecting this. This is pretty cool. I'm like, yeah, I know that. And he goes, now do I have your attention? Can we begin? And he's like, (laughs) Waiting for this. I'm like, yes, I need to get that connection point in leadership. We'll call it a point of trust. You need those small wins so that they can go, all right, whatever, what else you got over there? Now I'm going to give you that one step because now I've built a safe space and I continue to build it, that our next time that we talk in class is going to be completely different. Just because I showed up. But it takes a lot of energy, particularly difficult conversations that most of us avoid. When I have to have the P conversation, which is plagiarism, when I have to have conflict and some other things that you need to learn these skills to learn how to do it well, because I don't like it either. It drains me. I'm exhausted by two in the afternoon because I've had four of these calls today. But if you don't anticipate that it's going to be ugly... If you anticipate that intention for meditation going, oh, it's going to be a great day. You know what? Me and Dee, we had a great time in our conversation and I was able to turn it around because if we show up differently, they show up differently. Mm -hmm. And that's hard to do because sometimes I'm telling like, listen, you might have a a rough thing. You're not going to be the president of my fan club today. (laughs) And and he's, "Uh uh-oh. And I'm like, well, I just want to kind of set the mood. And I always use a little humor to just kind of advance what could happen and offer us the opportunity to partner so it it goes a different direction. At the end of the call, says, I think I'd be okay being the president of your fan club. It's, no kidding. I get to keep my degree today. That's fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> but he understands the point because he's not going to remember the nitnoid stuff we talked about. He's going to no. remember that I made his journey a little bit easier because I was with him. It didn't change what he had to do. It didn't change the difficulty of what he had to do. It did change the partnership. And now he's grinning all day and people are like, what are you grinning about? Never mind. You won't understand. Don't worry <laughs> about it. <laughs> but he <laughs> feels heard. Exactly. And I've learned that I need to establish that first. Then I can teach them. And sometimes the teaching doesn't happen because if I can't establish, that's the whole Maslow's thing. If they're hurting, you can't teach a child who is hungry. If they haven't eaten yet, they're not going to focus on school. If somebody lost right. their dog, they're not going to focus on what I'm saying. If you're in no. the office and somebody's wife has got cancer or, or grandfather's, they're not going to focus. You have to deal with where they are and love them as a human being. Yeah. That's difficult because nobody likes that touchy-feely, lovey kind of stuff in the yeah. boardroom. I'm like, that's exactly the place it needs to be. Yeah, for sure. I agree with you 100%. As mentioned, you call yourself and are known as the academic entrepreneur. What is an academic entrepreneur and what do you do as an academic entrepreneur and how did you get that title? Let's start with the last part first. Sure. This was, oh gosh, probably close to when I started my company about two years. So this is probably like 2010 or so. People come into your lives for a reason or a season. Mm-hmm. I have not seen this person first. It was somebody I connected with in Spain. I can't okay. even remember the gentleman's name. 
But he, like you, was asking, so what do you do with all these hats and stuff like that? And I said, well, I have one foot in academia because I'm a college professor by day, so to speak. And I put my cape on and I'm a business owner at night. There's the entrepreneur because I started my own business actually in response to something I was mad about in academia. I just started a company. Get me mad. I do amazing things. And so he says, oh, so you're an academic entrepreneur. And we both sat there going, is that what I am? Wow. He goes, well, it kind of describes what you do. I'm like, well, yeah, it does. Actually, it's, can I have it? He goes, I will give that to you. The royalties, everything is for you. And I was like, wow. And from that moment, we both just sit there going, that's fabulous. Oh my God, that's great. I've been known as it at, ever since. Now I tried to trademark it. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneur Magazine really was a thorn in my rose for six months and I gave that up. But I still, because they think they own everything including the word entrepreneur and everything in front of it. They don't, but they have deeper lawyers. And I got the B team of lawyers. I didn't even rate the big guys from Harvard. I got the guys who just graduated from. And it was interesting. But for six months, they made my life a living misery. And it spooked me. And I just said, fine, whatever. But the fact is, that has described me. And I have coaches. And it depends on your philosophy. Because I was a business person first. And then I started teaching in academia part-time. Then there have been some times that I teach at many different universities and it's a full-time schedule, but part-time at each university. Other times I've been full-time. So I do a lot of different things, but it's a descriptor more than just a marketing point. And one of my mentors like, Cheryl, you call yourself an academic and I know it's first in the moniker, but you're a business owner who teaches in academia. And anyone who would call you an academic would be misusing that term because that would not apply to you. And I I find that amusing. Mm -hmm. So again, I do teach and I do this term. I'm carrying about a hundred students, three different universities, but it depends on what they need. There are some weeks I don't do very much this past week. I probably, and it's only Thursday. I've read over a thousand pages. I'm a doctoral mentor. So it just depends when the kids get busy, you know, but some of them are older than I am, but um, (laughs) it's interesting. So I think it's matters of who you need me to be. And that's the leadership chameleon. I'm not someone that stands in concrete. I'm someone that stands in water and the fluidity of the change. And I adjust and adapt. Typically I adapt my leadership style to the situation, but if you're really good and really magical, you can actually change the situation and make a new set of rules. And I'm learning to expand that even more and more, which is why I started my company 15 years ago. Cause somebody said, well, you can't do that. I'm like, says who? Watch me. Exactly. <laughs> and now I have, and nobody's imitated what I've done yet in 15 years. I'm like, oh, not to mention all the awards we have. So it was very interesting, but most people, my point they don't think of changing the rules. Captain Kirk yeah. was the only one in Star Trek who ever won at the Academy. And they say he cheated. No, he changed the rules. So he changed yeah. the parameters of how we measure success. And so that's harder to do. But I know the more experience I get as faculty, I lead my students to where I need them to go, but they get there on their own. I just craft the situation. They're like, really? So that happened? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> wow. I know exactly. And that's the attorney part of you. Never ask a question you don't know the answer to because you're preparing them. But that's a harder skill, and it's taken me 20-some years to learn it. So there are two options. So who would you like me to be, the academic or the entrepreneur? <laughs> <laughs> or both simultaneously, it. I suppose, because oh, I do go. teach business classes. So. That's it. Now, with you being a university professor, how long have you worked in the world of academia, and what inspired your journey into that world? Oh, those are easy questions. First of all, as of today, 23 years. It's very unique because as a military wife, I have moved 38 times and it's the only career. (laughs) It's the only career I've had that has gone with me, depending on where in the world I was. I could either teach online, I could teach in the classroom, I could teach a hybrid, but that's been the consistency, even though I've had lots of different jobs. So that's the backwards thinking here. 
it started because I was a military wife when we were stationed in Japan and we were in Tokyo and I remember them offering this really unique benefit for spouse or actually was wives at the time. That's how old I am is we, they didn't have spouses. They had wives back then. And if you wanted (laughs) one, the military would issue you one. I just kind of came along with his mess kit, but it was one of those benefits because it was overseas. They were willing to pay for 75% of my master's degree. And I said, well, what the heck I'm here. And I was doing very well teaching English, my Japanese students. And right. that's where I had started teaching. I didn't know what I was doing. I will tell you, it was really bizarre that I started teaching in Japan, but I was no teacher. And then I started earning my first master's. And it was really interesting how that journey well, because we were only in Japan for about 16 months and I wasn't yet finished with my degree. And so when we transferred back stateside to Albuquerque, it was a, I want to stay with the university that I'm with. And back yeah. then that was called distance education. I got mm-hmm. a VCR tape. And an email address. My weekly VCR tape showed up in the mail every week. And that's how I knew my professors. And that's how I eventually finished my degree. And here's the funnier part is I started in Japan with a school that was in Alabama and I graduated in New Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. These are the beginnings. Now it's commonplace. I can talk to 15 country in the span of the day and never leave my office because of all the tech, but we didn't have a lot of the tech. And that's part of the reason I was pursued as a college professor is simply because no one had done what I'd done yet, bad English, sorry, but it was the ability to, they wanted to pursue me as a professor because of that. And then I kind of fell into it, but this was interesting, but I never wanted to be, never thought I could be. And here I am 23 years later. And what's funny is because I didn't think I would ever graduate my first semester of college back at the university of Illinois. My first year was a complete disaster. And the fact I sit here now with four degrees, 23 years later going, wow, what a journey I have. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) So very interesting question. But yeah, I started in Japan for university and it was called Troy State at the time Mm -hmm. out of Troy, Alabama. They're all grown up now. Now it's Troy University. I graduated with my first master's there, not even from the city because I was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I had to go to White Sands for graduation. And I have yet to step foot on Troy campus. So if any of your listeners are Troy, Alabama, I want an invitation to a football game because I want to go see my alma mater. (laughs) Someday I'll get there. I'm a Trojan and I don't even know it. I've just never put foot on campus, but that started things. And it's amazing that when you say yes, the universe really does have an interesting sense of humor because I can't imagine when you ask me this question where I've come from. And I started with all that and it was like, huh, no idea what I was going to do with it. And Here we are 23 years later. Love and it. I'm still doing it, which is really interesting. Yeah. What lights you up or inspires you the most about the work you do, Cheryl? Hmm. The difference that I make with that student. I learned early, particularly when some students will earn an F, that I had to be very careful because I would say, well, I'm giving them grades. No, they're earning them. And that took me a long time to make that shift. But I also know that I can't be everything to everyone all the time. And so I look at the starfish and I'm sure you know the example with grandpa and the little boy on the beach with the starfish. And there's like millions of starfish on the beach and grandpa's picking up and throwing them one into the sea and one into the sea and one into the sea. And the little boy's like, grandpa, why are you doing that? He goes, you can't fix all this. He goes, no, but I made a difference for that one as he puts Uh that one in the sea. And then I made a difference for this one. And I started looking at this more of a micro level, not a macro level. So the fact is many people are afraid to start things because they feel the need to solve world hunger. They feel the need to single-handedly rid the world of pestilence and disease and war. And and it's just too big. Yeah. To make a difference for one person in your corner of the world Can you imagine, I tell this to my students all they did, the power of one, the power Uh of all I did was that student and that student today, I'm still grinning about him. 
is the fact that I changed it because he came and I could feel the resistance and I'm very intuitive and I could feel the, well, I'm going to give her what for, darn it. On stamping a feet always follows that, by the way. (laughs) So I knew that going into that, that I wanted to make it a different experience for him. I wanted it to shift his, to give him something else to think about, to make it a, now he's going to be smiling. It's not easy to do that and it doesn't always happen. There are some students that I'm not their favorite and I may never be. But there's also divorce in the world, and I've been divorced as well, and you don't get divorced because you like each other. So, I mean, sometimes that happens in there, but when it works, and when you see that inspiration, and you hear that student, and on the phone, you're like, oh, oh, and they get it, and you can just hear them going, yeah, I'm all about the bag of chips, that (laughs) chips are right on their face, and knowing that I helped them get there. No, I didn't do it singly, but we were in partnership. That's something that matters to me because I never wanted to earn my doctorate of just, you can call me doctor. My point was with great responsibility or with great accolade and accomplishment comes responsibility. And I don't take that lightly. I'm in with the 1% and I was disappointed during COVID when a lot of my colleagues were sitting on the sidelines and I'm thinking we need to get in the fight. That's why we're here. That's why we spent all this time and I know we're not going to get it right all the time, but we have to be the ones willing to step in and a leader always has a target on their back. And that's the part going, we may not have all the answers. We know how to find them and to unite people, but that feeling, and it doesn't happen all the time and it doesn't happen. All my students are catching me in a great day because it just happened. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, that's Riding the magic that wave. I love. Yeah. I'm trying to have that happen more often because I used to be transactional in my teaching. And now I'm more, I'd like to think charismatic, transformational, really worried about their experience, their weight, making their way in the world because nobody notices them. I am so disappointed when I'd say 90% of my students, when I ask them a question, they're like, wow. I'm like, what do you mean? No one's ever asked. That lights me up. The fact that how could someone never ask about you? You're a human being. You matter. You're going to do great things. And that's all people need is to be seen and to be heard. And I don't know why that is so elusive because my students, again, I teach leadership mostly. And when they all talk about all the crappy leadership they've had right and Uh i'm always amazed going but they have the i love me walls and i'm sorry i'm not sitting in front of mine right now but the (laughs) fact is they have all the degrees and all the certifications and the medals and the oh aren't i just that great in a bag of chips and yet they're still the world's worst leader yeah so my students ask me why took me a long time to answer that question because i used to think well you know maybe they were absent the day they taught leadership but i know they were there and my students they can take an exam on it they can define it they can write a paper on it what many of them miss that disconnect is the actual use of it and that's where i excel both as a speaker and a teacher i'm not teaching you this stuff to have a nice story to pat you on the head and give you another grade going isn't that nice no this is foundational things i want you to use it and many of my students often will say seriously yes you go to work tomorrow if you have a complaint unless you make an effort to help fix that complaint you need to stop complaining Mm -hmm. like what do you mean you got to be part of the process. I used to get in trouble from the university because I would make my students, if I happen to have a class on the day of voting for whatever it was, local elections, national, didn't matter. I don't care who you vote for, but you have to have voted to have to be in class tonight. Right. Like, what do you mean? The point is you need to be part of the process. You cannot complain and whine and moan and witch <laughs> and all that other stuff if you're not going to take any action. And so that's where I excel as a professor and where I'm often asked to guest speak because I'm going to rile you. I'm going to be that pearl in your oyster. I'm going to get that bird in your saddle. And I'm going to ask you, what did you do? And they're going to be, what did? You, what do you mean? What do I do? I did not teach you this. You could sit and go, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> no, I want to know what are you going to do with this? What do yeah. you mean you're going to do with this? You take something 
I taught you today and you take it to the office tomorrow. And it's amazing when things happen. And one of them, I remember this story as a grumpy, is I don't get paid to get touchy-feely in my class. All right. I'm like, but do you want a better outcome? Well, yeah. Well, I guess you're going to get touchy-feely in your class then. And so I taught him, it's like, all right, listen, just humor me. All right, just, just humor me just a little bit. I said, Monday morning, you go into your secretary. They tell you how old I am, right? Um, your <laughs> personal assistant, the people you work with, they just go in and say hi. And, hey, Mary, how was your weekend? He goes, that's it. That's it. Okay. So he goes in and he's never done this before. So he goes, hi, Mary. And Mary's, hi. <laughs> Back to work. Wednesday comes along and he'll meet her for lunch. He goes, hey, how did you have lunch? Fine. How are you? <laughs> your boss has lost her mind. Friday, that was the plan. It's like, all right, you're going to ask her what she's doing for the weekend. And now Mary's going, what is this guy doing? He never cared about me. He didn't even know my name, right? Monday morning comes around the next week. Suddenly all his reports are in his office. His things are cleaned up. He's filed. He goes, what happened to Mary? I'm like, didn't happen to Mary. It happened to you. Exactly. So now what he goes into his office is he turns off his computer, he turns on the lights, he turns off his cell phone, and now they are front and center. He goes, I have the happiest, most well-defined employees. I'm like, imagine that. No kidding. And I'm just sitting there going, that's how it's supposed to work. But they weren't trusting because they don't have many good leadership opportunities. And all I want them to do is try one thing. That's it. But you don't, I'm not asking you to be a surgeon. I'm not asking you to donate a kidney. You don't even have to volunteer your time. I just want you to take one thing you heard tonight. And I had a student actually change national policy because he goes, well, I've got a better idea. It's great. Did you tell anybody about it? He goes, nope. Well, then I guess it's not a great idea, is it? (laughs) And he got mad. And sometimes I have to poke him with a sticker. It's like, all right, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to go into your boss's office tomorrow. That's it. Five minutes of your time. That's all I'm asking. He goes, five minutes. I'm like, set your watch. 30 seconds if it is a deal. Suddenly they had a one-hour conversation. He goes, Dr. C, they put me in charge of this. He goes, what did you say? I'm like, I just told him my idea. Shocking. Really? That's all you did. You opened your mouth and you expressed something. Now, I sometimes have to couch him a little bit and teach him the how, not just the what. Yeah. I'm not going to go yeah. in and go to the boss and say, you suck. And then yeah. they're suddenly going to take you with any concern. So there's a little finesse. There's a little technique. Yep. And a student taught me this. And I wish I could remember the name of the student. But she was must have been 10 years ago. She said, a closed mouth doesn't get fed. Even if you're worried about stepping it, that's the leader. You take that risk. If you can learn how to do it, it's a little bit easier and less of a risk. But if you do not take the shot, you will not score. And too many people are sitting right. on the sidelines willing to complain about their president, about their boss, about the village trustee. And yet they're not willing to go to a meeting. They're not willing to vote. They're not willing to. I'm like, if you don't do any of those things, then I don't want to listen to you. You've lost the right yeah. point. And yeah. they're just, your indignation is not going to impact me. <laughs> I need you to do something. I don't care what something you do. Take action. Exactly. And that's all it is. And it's simple. And most of us like, well, I don't want to do it. I don't expect you to eat the elephant. Yeah. But I, you can nibble on his ear. You can take yeah. a little bite here. You can do something that makes somebody's world better today. And that's, that's really it. been my goal when I get up today is I want to do something. And I use the rule of three. I like to do something for three different people. And if it by the end of my day, it doesn't happen, then I'm calling three of my friends. And I'm just going to say, what can I do to make a better day for you? And it's amazing how that magic happens because we feel better when we know we've made a difference. Absolutely. And you can't change crappy situations, Brad. You know no, that. But you, you can make it easier to hold their hand while they're going through it and to That's listen it. and to cry and to laugh and to joke and put things in perspective, whatever it may be. That's what we are human beings for. So yep. I'm not sure that I teach leadership. I certainly think I teach being human. There you go. And that's it. That's what we all are. So you say that you have learned to make friends with failure. And I absolutely love that line. <laughs> Can you share with us what you mean by that? And what does the word failure mean to you? Ooh, 
oftentimes I'm hired to speak and the point, even my TED talk is the F word that'll change your life. Nobody likes that F word at all. Failure is something that it's just like the word exam. If I told you that we were having an exercise in class, your scores would go up 15% higher than if I walked in and said the word exam, something weird about that four letter word. Failure is no different. Mm -hmm. We avoid it. It's painful. We don't like it. And I finally decided that I had to learn how to fail. And this was hard for someone who was a salutatorian, valedictorian. Everything in my life was an A student until <laughs> senior year in high school. I'm on a college prep class. I'm taking AP classes and I'm in Calc BC, hardest class in, in our school. And I get my first C. That goes on the refrigerator, my friend. Then the first F was soon to follow, and that sucker went on the refrigerator. And I know my parents were trying to teach me that F happens, right? And I didn't learn that lesson because I was devastated. I can still feel the pain in my stomach to this day of when I think about that F, and it's like, oof, that was awful. Because I didn't learn, and to realize the F wasn't the problem. The F was a learning opportunity for me to be able to say, we have to give a grade. I didn't get above... 60. My calculus actually wasn't really my calculus is a problem. My addition was, and I come up with these horrific answers. And it was just, I was so scared and so hanging on so tight because it was a skill I didn't know. And I had to get tutors and I went to the professor. And I mean, I worked my tail off, but I had to learn how to fail to realize going, all right, it's not a big deal. It's all right. We dust ourselves off. We figure out what we've learned and we start again. Well, I didn't learn those lessons. And so I went to the University of Illinois for college after valedictorian, or actually I didn't. The first semester I went to another school and it was a complete disaster, hated it, chose the wrong school. It was like, can I come home now? So January, I go down to the University of Illinois, which is where I should have already started. And I get there. And I mean, my first year, I am literally, it was just horrible from start to finish. And I'm thinking to myself going, who likes this college stuff? I didn't. But I had to learn to figure out and failures kept coming. And you and I both know the universe is like, we're going to play Groundhog Day, girl, until you figure it out. <laughs> and so we play Groundhog And every time I failed, it got worse and worse. But worse is a judgment. It got better. And the, my TED Talk is actually about one of my failures because I had been a musician. I am a musician, but I had there been a musician go. from the age of five until I was a sophomore in college. I transferred into the organ program as only the undergrad, only undergrad ever, provisionally. And I was with these magnificent, we're talking, these are the organists that are now playing Notre Dame and Holy Name Cathedral and all the big cathedrals around the world. And I'm still playing my little Bach cantata, right? And so my sophomore year, the end of my semester, musicians have a final exam in order to fly you up to being an upperclassman. It's called a jury. Awful okay. name, but that's what it's called. I wasn't allowed to prepare for mine. I wasn't allowed to take for mine. My professor walked into my classroom and says, you're done, and walks out. Wow. I was dismissed. I just sat, I still remember sitting there going, what the hell just happened here? I had no warning. I had no prep. It was one day I went in, I can still hear the click of the door behind me. And it was just like, it was just over. I'm going, what do you mean it's over? I didn't have a plan B. That was the dream. That was the goal. I'd been playing since I was five. Other people have been telling that I was better than I was. I was now at the university. I'm with one of these guys who's been playing 40 years. You had to get one person's opinion. His was the person to get. But yeah. he was training Olympians and I was not Olympic material. So I was cut. I didn't know the difference back then. All I know is I suck. And I'm done and I'm a sophomore and all of my other friends are going in their juries and they're all flying up. And I'm like, I wasn't. My life stopped for me that day. The music literally died. I just sat there and I was just ill. And I just was 
the pain, the overwhelmed, and the what the hell am I going to do now? And unfortunately, I reacted to failure poorly because there was no mentor for me. No one taught me. And this was the, the pinnacle. It's like the universe bringing you to your knees going, do I have your undivided attention? And instead of dealing with it, I shut it down, shut it off and walked away. So here was the hardest part is I took one person's opinion. I could have transferred again. I could have done all kinds of stuff, but I didn't. I said, fine, I am going to stay at this university. I walked into my counselor. We adjusted my schedule and I still graduated four and a half years. I had to do a summer just to stay on time. And I stayed and my career at the university was spectacular. I became a sorority girl, a little sister of fraternity. I did all the things and football games and things I couldn't do in the music program because it's you choose that. It's just, that's it. That's it. And so I had an amazing life and I've had an amazing career. But what I did that day is I turned away from who I am. I told you I was a musician. No, I am a musician. But I walked away for 30 years, Brad. 30. Too painful, didn't want to deal, put my whole thing, put it in a box, put it in the back of the closet, said, I'm done, moving on. But you know that's not the end of the story. You know that little thing, it just festers and it pops up at the most inappropriate Mm -hmm. time. And so these messages kept coming up and I was ignoring them because I have had a career as a professor. I've been in media, I've been in radio, I've been in TV, I've been at the USO. I mean, all these different things because I was a military wife. Musician was not one of them. And so it was very interesting that when I bought this house that I'm in right now, and I was here seven years as of last Saturday. And I've never been anywhere longer than five. And so the fact that I'm here and this house didn't have just one, but it had two pianos in it. Neither one of them stayed. All the homes that my realtor, for some strange reason, all had pianos in there. And I'm looking at this. That is bizarre. Is this a trend or something? So needless to say, I couldn't, exactly. I couldn't buy the house with the piano. They took them. But about a year or two later, it was right before COVID. So like the November of, was it 20, November of 2019, suddenly a baby grand piano finds me. Literally, I will say it that way, finds me. I am interviewed and whether or not I'm going to be a steward for the next 30 years. Notice the time frame, 30 years. Mm-hmm. They had it for 30 now and I'm sitting there going, oh, this is funny. So I bought this baby grand piano. She sits in my great room as we speak. And I remember music suddenly became part of it and I found it funny that the messenger the universe used was the same messenger told me to shut it off as the same one to turn it on and it was the most incredible experience as I sit there and I can still remember I had my hands on the piano keyboard and I'm crying just crying because I hadn't played in 30 years. And granted, I'm an organist, not a pianist, but you can't quite put a pipe organ in your great room. At least I can't <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I settled for the baby grand, right? But this is where the story starts getting interesting. And I start playing again. And again, I play a piano like an organist. It's interesting. So a friend of mine steps up and she says, well, when are you going to take your own advice? I said, excuse me? She goes, you haven't played. You keep telling buddy about this failure. So your question, how are you doing the failure? What are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He goes, you stop playing. When are you going to pick up your organ shoes and go back and play? It's, oh, no. I couldn't do that. <laughs> and so she said, she goes, you were the world's biggest hypocrite. And she just gave me the business. And I'm like, you're right. I don't like it, but you're right. And so <laughs> I ordered my organ shoes. This is like in November and I'm ordering some music and I'm playing it on the piano. And then suddenly I make contact with the director at my church. And I said, listen, I'd like to see if I've still got my chops. I haven't played in 30 years. You've got a pipe organ in the church. Could I just come one day? Just nobody has to listen. I promise I'll play quietly. I just want to see. And so what happens the next year on the day before Valentine's Day, Brian calls me. He goes, you want your shot? I said, yeah. He goes, you got the organ tomorrow with the church. It's Valentine's Day, Brad. (laughs) Valentine's Day. So I've got my organ shoes. I've got my music. I'm crying the night before. I'm crying on the way to the church. I finally see this magnificent pipe organ. Oh, she's a beauty. 
And I sat there and I'm like, oh my God, the moment of truth. And of course, this is, playing an organ is very complicated. See, it's not just like playing one line of text. Like yeah. you know, I've got six lines. I've got two in this hand, two in this hand, and two in my feet. Right. And so I bring out the big guns and I just start playing. And I mean, the tears. Mm, I'm going to get emotional here. The tears were just falling, but I fell back in love with my music that day. And I fell back in love with me that day. The, and and that's, that's the most part. important thing. And the TED Talk doesn't know that yet. The TED Talk only knows the failure part. I've not done TED 2.0, which I suppose yeah. I have to do someday. Yes. But the fact is, my point is, I solved that failure. Was I any good? Eh, I was all right. I mean, I still have some chops. It's funny because Brian, I didn't realize he was listening. He goes, all I hear is the love you have for this instrument. And he goes, the clunkers, I've played 30 years. But it was, you remember. And all I see is the courage of that fire you had in you and the fact that you were willing to face it and you were willing to face it in a church. And it was just amazing. And for six weeks after that, I had organ time. So I would go (laughs) once or twice a week that they would give me an hour, you know, an hour and a half and I could just play when no one else was using the church and kind of thing. And then he left the church. And so thus ended my time. So I don't know where that's going to go because it's kind of in hiatus. I haven't found another organ situation yet. It's again, it's not like you could bring it home and put it. No, no, very true. But I'm sure you will find it. I hope so. And and I just don't know what the good Lord in the universe wants me to do with this. But the fact is, I answered that question from that failure. Failure is only failure if we let it stop us completely. Failure is just a bridge to be able to say, okay, I didn't stay a failure. It's a process. It was making friends of being able to say, okay, I'm going to look you straight in the eye. It was painful. It was hurtful. And it was the emotional hurdles that I had to overcome more than any physical stuff. As I can learn to be good again, I can't learn to have the fear, which many of us avoid. We shut off, we shut down, and we just put it away. I had the courage to bring out that box, probably one of the most painful things I've ever done. I'm sure And I had to make friend with failure because you, there's no shortcut. You know this. You've got to go right through it. And I had to experience all the pain, all the heartache, relive all the things that happened to me in order to get to the other side. And now that, that I'm you are. Side, it was magical. I don't know what's next. I can't answer that. Everyone asks me that when I tell the story. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe there's some organ gig out there. Maybe I'm going to play. It Maybe just maybe I'll play my parents' funeral someday or maybe another wedding or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I never anticipated music finding me. And yeah. the fact that it's found me in this way. And on Valentine's Day. Oh, <laughs> that's fabulous. I, you can't get a better story than that. Nope. Exactly. Nope. So pay attention to the universe. The universe is telling you stories and the stories that it tells you gives you amazing opportunities if you'll listen. And I often wonder, wow, what if I wouldn't have taken that chance? I wouldn't know. There it is, but it wasn't easy. I love it. (laughs) I hear a lot of people say that they don't like using the word failure because their viewpoint is that there is no such thing as failure. It's only teachings or lessons. What are your thoughts on that? I think we're going to go back to Shakespeare for the rose is a rose. Doesn't matter what we call it. Whatever mm. you call it, it's a we're not there yet. And I think that three letter word of yet really determines whether you are a failure or you think you're a failure because we are not our failures, but we internalize them. Yeah. And that's what I did. I listened to one man's opinion and to this day I missed him because I went back to try and talk with him and he'd already passed away. I wanted mm. to thank him. People are like, you you want to thank the man who ruined your life? I'm like, he didn't ruin my life. He put me in another direction because the universe needed me there. And at some point the universe helped guide it in home. That, that I think true. that's the important piece, right? We have to be able to, no matter what the situation is, we have to be able to look at it, take a step back, look in and see that there is a silver lining and there is a lesson in there. And it's meant to happen that way. Things happen for you, not to you. Exactly. And my exactly. dad always told me, he said, what's meant for you will never, ever go by you. He always said that. Like He drilled that into me. 
That's why I've been Man. playing Groundhog Day and didn't realize if I would have played Groundhog Day sooner, how might my life have changed? And here's something that I that really stunned me. Shortly after I did the whole organ on Valentine's Day, a friend of mine came in and took me to a date for a party because I'm still single and I didn't I, I'm not dating. And so I had him put on a tux and he took me to the party and we're talking and he asked me one question that has stuck with me from day one. He goes, "If you had the ability to give yourself advice at that moment, what would you say?" And of course, I had the whole I want to do over. I want to be able to do this difference and whatever. And, and he said, "That's the wrong answer." He goes, "My answer is I wouldn't do a damn thing." No. I said, what? He goes, you are who you are because of everything you did yeah. today. I wouldn't change anything. I'd tell myself to buckle up, have the right of my life and have a great time. That's and it. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And so I have tried to do just that because that's where you embrace the failures. That's where you thank the universe for all the gifts that you at one point thought were negative and they weren't. They have got rings of roses around them. You just didn't recognize them. And so I believe how we call them and how we frame them is how we deal with them. Hmm. And failure and money and a few other are judgment words. Yeah, These are words that automatically exam that will just put fear in the hearts of man. Yeah. And so I think if we can make friends with failure, failure is not a four letter word for me. Failure is a gift. Failure, failure is like, what do you got for me today? Let's see. How can I fail? Because my shtick is now fail faster, succeed sooner. I want my people to fail as fast as they can because faster means less emotional, less avoidance, less pain. You get it out of your system. You see it as a gift and you move on to the good stuff. I love it. We don't <laughs> think of failure that way. We think no. of it as this big, awful, poison. Horrible thing. Yeah. yeah, it's just, and I did too. And it shut me down, shut me off, and I believed it. So had I been able to say, well, all right, so I'm not the Olympian organist. Yep, I'm not Mozart's prodigy. Not going to happen anytime soon. But I could have stayed in the business of music. I could have yeah. kept music in my life. There's a lot of options I had. I saw no options. I saw, you don't want me. I don't want you. I'm yeah. out. See ya. Yeah. And I think that's too harsh. So when we look at failure, it isn't permanent because failure isn't us. Failure is a learning process. We just didn't get it right yet. So if we can look at Edison, how many times that man fail? And he didn't care whether it was 16, 28, 72. Yeah. He finally got all the way to the end. And then it worked. Exactly. You fail as often until you get to the good stuff. What's the thing we learned as kids, right? How many licks does it take to get the center, to of, the center of a Tootsie Pop? Right? Pop yeah. The world will never know, right? That's and I right. always look at that going, how many licks is it going to take for you? I don't know. For me, it took 30 years and a lot of stubbornness to be able to say, nope, not doing it. And then the world's, yeah, you sure about that? Really, really, <laughs> Let's really, look at that really, again. really that sure again. <laughs> before because nothing's permanent. Yeah. And I think the hardest part was having the courage to see, am I going to light the world on fire? Probably not. But I was able to do what a lot of people don't and to right a wrong in my life that it was time. And I, I think that's amazing that now I'm not always, I wouldn't say I'm one of those people that loves to run into a burning building. We don't like failure. We don't like conflict. We don't like pain. We don't put our hand intentionally on the stove just to make sure that we could, yep, still hurts. Uh -huh. yeah. That's something we do. But I can also say that if you avoid it, it's never going to get any better. And so yeah. I had to learn how to be able to say, okay, failure, and take the power out of it. It's like, all right, what have you got? I screwed it up. I take full accountability of it. What am I going to do next instead of hiding it under the rug? All it does is make it worse. Then we internalize it. And I did. I thought there was something wrong with me because, oh, I have failed. Honey, I am go big or go home. I have failed in every area of my life. Sometimes twice I had so much fun the first time. But that just shows me that if you keep showing up, that's the whole idea. Failure isn't failure if you get up one more time and you got knocked That's out. right. That's right. But that's and that's hard. what you have to remember. And that's the hard part because I didn't have to do it alone. I had friends who had to tough love me through it. 
I had friends who helped me cry through it. I had friends who celebrated me through it. And some of them, I think, have a lot more respect going, well, you're no longer the hypocrite. You fixed it. I'm not sure that I fixed it. I'm not sure I used that word. But I had the courage to address it and face my fears. And the failure was more fearful than anything. Because, yeah, I can still play. Not well. I mean, come on. That was 30 years ago. But the fact is, it's the fear that I faced. And that's what failure is, is the fear of letting yourself down, fear of not being good enough. And here's the secret I will share with you all that I have learned is... We have to separate ourselves, the person, from ourselves, the skill. Regardless of what we do, how we accomplish, whether we fail, whether we don't, doesn't matter. We as human beings are always good enough the way we are. We were made in God's image. We will stay in God's image. Our skill sets, maybe not so much. I'm never going to be an astronaut. I'm probably not going to be an NASCAR <laughs> driver. I know for a fact because of a date I had in college, I am never going to be a surgeon. One of my famous dates in college is one of my boyfriends took me to the cadaver lab. He actually did become a famous orthopedic surgeon. God love him. But in that moment, I said, not for me. I'm trying to not lose my cookies on a date. But I realized sometimes failure is simply telling you what you're not good enough and what we don't want to do. And it was valuable information. It was a, a little dramatic <laughs> in the way I found out. Yeah. There were things that I know I'm not good at. And I think if I would have tried to make my life as a musician, I would have been yet maybe just an out of work, broke musician. When mm-hmm. that pivot, and I hate that word, but that redirection of my professor saying, I'm the gatekeeper, you're not getting in here. And I had to find a different way. Finding yeah. a different way showed me an amazing career that I might not have had otherwise. So it really was a gift, but I guarantee you, it didn't feel like one at the time. No, <laughs> of course it never does, right? What we think is the worst possible thing that could happen for us at the time usually ends up being the best possible outcome or the best possible scenario you could ever imagine because it just shows you that you're not meant to go in that direction, Brad or Cheryl, sorry, but we've got other plans for you. And this or is where you yet. need to go. And I think it's yeah. also the framing part of it because many yeah. of us are worse than the universe could ever be. It's not yet. And there's nothing wrong with you when you don't get what you want. And so that's where I started with that image. As long as I can get rid of that image and break that yardstick of what I want it to look like, I've learned that God does a better job of doing God than I do. And if I just <laughs> stay out of his way and he doesn't feel the need to inform me either. I'm not on a need to know. I yeah. don't get emails. I don't get warnings. I don't get any of this stuff. It just kind of happens. And I swear he just sits there and he's like, oh, she's just so cute. <laughs> if she would just get out of her own way and let me yeah. do my job, she'd be far happier. And well, no- that's the problem for most of us, right? Is we get in our own way. We are our biggest hurdles. No ifs, ands, or buts about that. But and- I think we can be less of that if we have people who would guide us, who are ahead yes. of us in the process, who could have maybe mentored me to help me see that. I might have gone a little less trauma, maybe still have stayed a musician. There's a lot of options that might have happened, but that's where now I try to be as a professor, as man, to be the mentor I would have liked to have had and didn't. Maybe I can teach them from some of my drama that Uh maybe they won't make the same mistakes I did, or maybe they'll make better informed decisions because they'll get to that maturity sooner. They'll get over that fear faster. Or they'll simply recognize that, yeah, you just don't know everything. Sorry. Well, that's part of why we're here is to help others, support each other, cheerlead each other, and help each other so that maybe they don't have to go through the same shit that we went through. And they can have a little bit of an easier time getting through that, right? That's part of the process. I tell my students I'm not above them or below them. I'm just a little ahead of them in the process. So that's maybe it. it's so much easier to walk in my footsteps than you to reinvent the wheel. Yes. Like my student today, I'm going to make him a little bit easier because now he's going to see a different direction, a different system, and get there faster. A lot less less hell and heartache and maybe a little bit more humor, but I didn't have people to do that for me. And so now right. I think it is a gift 
maybe it'll keep your family together. Maybe you won't get divorced. Maybe you won't have the stress that I did. Maybe, but still, if I don't try, I won't know. And I have some success stories and those keep me smiling. There you go. (laughs) So what is one tip then that you can provide for listeners who might currently be struggling with failure and unsure about how to move forward and how to deal with it? The thing that comes to mind most effectively is try not to take yourself so seriously and have failure shut you down. You have to take failure to lunch to ask what its lesson is. Sometimes, like you said, when it's the worst possible thing we could have envisioned, our dog died or we're getting divorced, we've got a cancer diagnosis, the sky is falling, it's the worst thing ever. The question is, can we ask what the lesson is here? Because everything's a lesson if we're willing to open up to it. The question is, we may not like it, and here's the point, we don't have to. I guarantee you, I didn't like this. was not a good time, okay? I will tell you that from here. But it was necessary And I embraced it so that it could prepare me for what was coming. And I didn't realize that you don't understand until you've run the gauntlet. You can't understand another buddy's pain unless you've been there. So I'd like to know that my pain wasn't in vain because I was too arrogant to realize its lesson. And so I think if you could sit there and just spend some time, because that's the worst thing that I don't like to do is I stay in the state of busyness. Because it gives me an unfound sense of security that as long as I'm busy, I don't have to deal with things. That's true. But if you don't deal with things, they don't get dealt with. Unresolved, yep. Yep. So when I get that hole in my stomach and the answer is yes, I still have it. Yes, I'm still failing at things. I fail less. I understand how to use the process. I know that when that feeling comes, I don't run away with it. I sit with it. Do I cry? Yes. Is it painful? Absolutely. Do I have friends now who recognize that? It's like, all right. And sometimes it's tough love. Sometimes they hold my hand. Sometimes they just watch me to make sure I don't go over the edge. We're all human. We're all a work in progress. So I think the biggest thing, and if you need help, then you have to figure out the help you need. It could be a therapist. I've seen many of those. It could be a counselor. It could be a friend. It could be a mentor, a coach, somebody, a business. There's so many other folks that are on there. If you don't have the courage to do it yourself, and I'm not suggesting you have to, reach out. It's an honor and a privilege when others have helped me, even though I guarantee you, I've fought many of them every step of the way. They're like, Cheryl, God, are you exhausting? Would you have just stopped fighting me and we would have gotten here sooner? And the answer is, yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) But we don't always recognize it when we're in the midst of the fire, right? So the biggest thing I would do is to learn about yourself and your resistance. We resist that what we're afraid of. We walk away from things that hurt. We don't want to put our hand on the stove. I'm not suggesting that you would intentionally do that, but sometimes the only way through a painful situation is to acknowledge it and go through. And most of us were like, nope, not going to do it. I'm like, okay, that's your choice. And I didn't for three years. Now that I'm on the other side of it, so glad I did. Wish I would have gone through it sooner, but I didn't want to go through that pain either. I thought I could just put it on a shelf and ignore it and it would go away. Mm -hmm. It might have stayed silent, but apparently there were pieces in me as I went on this enlightenment journey and as I started learning about myself and they're like, it's time. For sure. So maybe it's time. And that's what I do. I coach people through some things. So if you want to go through someone who's been there, I always think that someone who's ahead of you in the process, who's done it, brings more value as a coach, therapist, friend, counselor than those who can empathize. Maybe we can sympathize, but if you've never been divorced, you don't get it. Yeah. If you've never had a situation that you've had your entire dreams pulled from you and your professor says, nope, and that's it. And you're like, I got nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So you really need to look at someone because that's what I think we can do with fellows. I'm not above you or below you. I'm just a little ahead of you. And if some things I teach for how to get through the process sooner is their fundamentals. Part of what I told the student today is it's a duck. He's like, what do you mean? What are you talking about this duck? I'm like, a duck, if it talks like a duck, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, 
looks like a duck, still a duck. Yeah. But oftentimes we take that duck as, no, it's only a duck if it's at work. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to bring my work skills home because it somehow it comes home and it's a giraffe. No, still a duck. Exactly. And so when I looked at that, I was giggling at this. Let's not make this overcomplicated. Let's not overthink it. Let's not bring the zoo. Let's just I mean, it's, it still waddles, it still quacks, it still has a mom, it still has a dad, it's still, fundamentals are fundamentals for yeah. So If you can embrace yeah. them and say, oh, you mean I'm normal? Yep. Sorry to tell you, everybody goes through this. There's not one person that has ever gone through life unscathed. Yeah, for but sure. Can you imagine if we did it with a little bit more grace and elegance, a little Incredible. bit more happiness and joy. And they're like, you want to go through hell with joy? I'm like, yeah, it's possible. It's not easy. But that's been where I'm working at right now because a lot of my students saw me after I went through the crisis. Mm-hmm. Now my coaches are like, well, can you show them an example while you're in the crisis? I don't want somebody to see me when I'm raw. Are you kidding me? With tears coming down with my less than civil tongue, a friend of mine calls it. I can get angry. You don't see it often because I've learned how to control it. But the point is, I still get angry. Now I've learned to be publicly vulnerable so I can show my students an example of what that might look like because most people won't show that. Now, I'm not going to go off the rails and have the white truck came. I'm not... (laughs) going to go quite that far. But I know there are some things that we are private moments that we only want because we think we're the only person in the world that's ever gone through this hell and heartache. Sorry, not even close. No, definitely But if not. we can show as we're going through to be able to say, yeah, I'm not happy when my boyfriend dumped me. I'm not happy when my dog died. I mean, why would you expect me to be? Well, yeah. you're acting as if you are. It's, ooh, my bad. Let me not become an automaton. Let mm-hmm. me not become that robot. But let me show you a... Daniel Goldman would call it emotional intelligence, social intelligence, grace under pressure. Again, whatever you call it, however you frame it, it's still the, how am I going to get through the crappy parts of life with grace and elegance so it doesn't take me out? You can go through healthy breakups. I know it's impossible because the anger... You can celebrate life when a good friend of yours passes away. There are ways to be able to channel some of that energy, but these are skills we've not been taught, so we've never learned, and so we avoid it because it's painful. Maybe we can make it a little less painful and understand that we are humans. That's why we come together. That whole misery loves company. I'm not sure that it loves company, but it does make it easier to help somebody walk the gauntlet. It's easier to walk someone and go through fire when you're holding a hand or have friends behind you to support sure. you. It doesn't change the fire. It doesn't change what happened. But it does make you feel like you're not alone. And that's yeah. probably what I do best is I will handhold and say, yep, you're human like the rest of us. Congratulations. Well, <laughs> that, I remember the day I became human. And it was not a good day for me. I just thought, well, this is crap. I don't like this. Who, who thought this was a good idea? I meet that person. I'm going to smack them. But I think that understanding of immortality and realizing it's not about what we do in life. It matters who we do it with. Best yeah. advice I've ever been given. And so I think we need to learn how to internalize all that strife and all that stuff. We don't teach those skills in school, Brad. No. I, I've no. never had that. I had to go to counseling to learn coping skills and overwhelming skills. And what do I do when I'm angry? And what do I do when I'm mad because the guy dumped me or divorced or because things didn't just turn out the way I wanted them, damn it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm sorry to say, but I don't have that kind of magic in my magic wand. But I can <laughs> look a little bit more graceful and elegant as things, because it's easy when things go right. And yeah, of course it is. Absolutely. When they go not what we we're expecting or they go really wrong and you're like, how the hell did I get here? It's like, oh, well. <laughs> then you have to look at those and see what you can do. But I think particularly since COVID, we've been so isolated and away from human beings. We haven't quite continued to develop our coping skills. And when we're so angry that we just need another human being to hold our hand, to listen to us, to maybe give us a hug, to maybe hold us until the pain gets a little bit Mm -hmm. less. Is that such a bad thing to be an ambassador? I think that would be great, but 
not a lot of people like the touchy feely thing. You're like in the boardroom is if somebody dies, I'm the first one that's going to go and hold their hand. I might say something completely inappropriate, but I learned that I'd rather have somebody open up and risk being wrong or saying something stupid rather than stay away because they don't know what to say. For sure. Be a human, reach out, love another human being, and maybe we'll both learn something. I think it's elementarily simple. And the fact that we overthink this is just crazy. So learn to be human, I guess, would be the best advice I could tell your (laughs) listeners. I don't know if there's human one-on-one. I've never seen that class. Maybe I should start teaching it. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I want to speak, you mentioned your TEDx talk, and I want to speak about that whole experience. Getting a TEDx talk, of course, is a big dream and goal for a lot of people out there. Was this something that was a bucket list item for you? Absolutely. It took me 10 years, actually. 10 years. And all the states that I had moved to, I tried in every state that I was in, particularly as an academic. That's the pinnacle. And Top so, of the mountain. But I had to reach out to and keep learning the process and mm-hmm. how to do it and ideas worth spreading and understanding the system. Because I actually am not a TED speaker. I'm a TEDx speaker. Right. Because TEDx is the invite through these particular salons and stuff, depending on where you are, they'll call them. But these groups of people under one license that will come together like I did for the New York stage when I was in Farmingdale. The TED talk is when you go to the next pinnacle and you're invited because you are, have been elevated, your popularity, your topic, et cetera. So there's a whole process that I wasn't aware of. And I just thought you just got on stage in there. But it was almost a six-month process from the time that I did my submission to the time I got accepted. Matter of fact, I still have the champagne cork and the bottle of champagne awesome. and being able to say, oh my gosh, that was it was just a... I can't believe it's me kind of thing, right? And then the whole coaching process, you do have to be open to be coachable. A yeah. lot of people have, they well, I want my speech to be this. And I'm a speaker quite a bit, but they have mm-hmm. a unique thing to control for quality. Right. It is a, a memorization. And I speak as extemporaneously. I just speak what's in my heart, what's that comes up. And I always think that there's, and I pray before that, I speak to say that knowing there's something that somebody needs me to say, but it's not scripted. TEDx has to be scripted. And so that was a really difficult opportunity for me to have to sit there and memorize something or at least get it really close. And so, and it was tough during COVID because in COVID in particular, remember all the quarantines, the stage was in New York, I'm in Chicago. And so now we can tell you the story, but I couldn't quarantine there for two weeks. And there were three of us as part of Farmingdale in Chicago. One of those three had access to the Batavia Opera House. They built us a separate stage for New York stage here in Chicago at that Opera House. And it was very cool because the red dot was there, but there was no people there. And it's the most Mm. thing I'm in this 2,000 seat venue. And it was spectacular. And there was only me and the producer. That's it. They did all our raw footage two weeks before. And so everybody else was live in New York. We had already been live and they Mm -hmm. piped us in, but this Uh, way we would still be. So many of Ted's had to do it at home. Oh no, we got the entire Ted experience, the stage, the dot, the whole nervousness, the four different cameras. What we didn't get is I couldn't be in New York with the rest head because we couldn't be quarantined there. So I never got to meet everyone other than the people in Chicago and have the after parties, right? And to have that, what it's like to actually be on stage. The full experience. Exactly. Now I went the full experience. I never did my talk more than once. I figured it's not going to get any better than that. I recorded it the first time I was done. My colleagues had options if they wanted to be able to do it because you want to get that practice in there, but. And I, it's funny because I screwed up halfway through it. If you ever watch the thing, it's funny because I got in my head and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm here and I'm doing this in there. And I got in and I go a little bit. It's hysterical. But I know exactly in that moment when I was thinking, it was really crazy. But that experience. And so I'd like to do TED again. I've applied for another because I want the entire live audience experience. Yeah. I want that live team experience. 
And I think I'd like to be able to now what I know to be able to perfect it and go forward with it. So maybe I'll be allowed another opportunity, but 10 years it took me to get that one. Wow. It was very different too, because the topic I wanted to talk about was failure. Mm. What they wanted me to talk about was the medical part of this, of where failure lives in the brain. And I told them, I am not an MD. I am a PhD. Yeah. You know that. And so I had to contact all my MD friends and to be able to go and do some extra research and to look at this esoteric type of things of, well, where does this action, there's a lot of research that says yeah. specific, the amygdala and some other things that you're looking at parts of the brain and where failure lives. And they're doing some amazing research where certain parts of the brain find out. But I had to do this. And here's what scared me, because I had thought that once you got the stage, you were done. Once you get your recording, the license holder has to submit that to Ted for its approval. Well, I think there's like 17 of us and three of us didn't get approval the first time. Oh, wow. And the fact check. And that's where my academia came up because I kept records on everything. Everything I had at evidence-based, I had my citations, I had all of my stuff and I had to submit it. And they reviewed all my stuff. And I mean, agonizing another, I don't know what it's like, another week, another 10 days. I'm like, so I could have gone through all of this and still not been a TEDx speaker if they would have kicked it. And the answer is, yeah. I'm like, that's important information. But because of my academic acumen at that point, as boy, being paranoid at that point, having everything, because nothing I said in my talk didn't have some evidence. Now, you might right. not disagree with some of the stuff because it was pretty cutting edge and some interesting things, but I had to do that. And that's what saved me when we finally did the final edits. And then eventually it got through and then the rest of us got approved. And I was like, oh. And it was the rest, they say, you know? is history. <laughs> exactly. And so, but it has opened some interesting doors, particularly for my students. Yeah. Because now they're looking at faculty, and not many of us have the TED Talks, at least in the circles that I teach in. And so it's something that kind of elevates my, yeah, to a little sure. bit that says that I have some credibility. And those types of credibility pieces helps my students with that conversation I had today that they'll give me the benefit of the doubt because yeah. they've seen my accolades. And they're like, all right, she's got to know something, right? I mean, you don't get to where she is by having a TED Talk and published yeah. times and you've graduated 102 students and you have the resume and they're like, yeah, I'm thinking she knows something or at least she knows more than me. I'm like, yes. ah, there we go. <laughs> there's That's the secret. two steps ahead. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. All you need is, is I have to know more than them. Not yeah. always and not in everything, but that's yeah. where it is. But those types of accolades, it was a magical experience. And I still, to this day, I have my Ted dress. I've never worn it since. It still hangs oh, in my wow. closet. I went <laughs> bought a brand new dress for it. I'm a girl. That's the way it happens. And I still watch it every now and then. And it's just, it's surreal when you just, oh, and that was several years I did ago. that. Mm-hmm. Love it. Well, Isn't congratulations cool? on that. Thank that you, is. Thank you. It's so much fun. What do you think your unique skill set or superpower is that's helped you become successful? Stubbornness and systems. I'm born under the sign of the Taurus, and I think I'm a very unique individual because I almost died when I was born. I mean, I was born with collapsed lungs. I was christened by a Jewish doctor the day I was born simply because I didn't think I was going to make it. Spent a few weeks in the incubator and became my pediatrician's olden patients until I was in college that he was willing to die with success. You know, everyone would say, well, you're the mom. It's no, I'm the patient. He goes, oh, you're that patient. (laughs) I'm like, yep, that's me. So I became his crowning glory because, again, he almost lost me. And it was amazing that I've been told three different times in my life I was checking out. The doctors have been wrong each time, or I've been too stubborn either way. (laughs) But I think that tenaciousness, 
that stubbornness sometimes can be a double-edged sword. Again, mm-hmm. there are people in my life like, Cheryl, you have a bit of a sharp tongue. It's, I can. I'm trying to <laughs> lessen its impact or use it more productively. But I do have an edge to me that I have to be a little careful. But that edge is a double-edged sword because that edge is what kept me alive. That right. edge has propelled me forward that when someone tells me no, I start a company. I, oh, I was so mad. I was so mad that they dare insult me going, what do you mean I can't do this? Watch me. And my company's still around 15 years later. And they're looking going, inside the odds. Well, it's a small company. We're not in the million dollar range yet, but. Doesn't matter. No, but we're still here. And the point is, my whole point was to make a difference. And that's what we try to do. But that stubbornness and that tenacity and that, oh, tell me I can't do something. Come Mm -hmm. on, I dare you. And that's going to be the first thing that. So I've learned to embrace my stubbornness. Some people would call it anger. But the other thing that I've learned to do is I've learned systems. And this is what I teach most about both my students, my client. I've got a speech that's coming up for an international clientele for CEOs coming in, I think it's like the 15th of August on LinkedIn. And part of that is the system efficiency metric is what we're calling it. And all that is is learning to do what you do best efficiently with the least amount of drama and the least amount of effort that you're going in there. And it's really interesting when you can take the long way around the mulberry bush. I often do. It seems the shortest distance is supposed to be a straight line. No, me, I'm just wandering around. Eventually I get there. But this is the part that I think when I tell my students that it took me four years to earn my degree in a few months, I've had some of my students do it in less than a year. I've had some do it in less than 18 months. Part of that is the work that we've done together that I've been able to do things and they've been able to do it better than I have. All I have to do is create this system. I don't care if it's research. I don't care if it's time management, system of being a good, whatever it is you do, we have a system for driving a car. I teach those efficiency metrics and I teach people, can you get there faster? Just like failure, fail faster, sooner, get all the bad stuff out of the way. When you're in a new job, a new whatever, and that awkward learning stage where Mm -hmm. everything new and you've got to create that well i'm going to screw this up yeah initially well you didn't come out of the womb walking either i'm That's pretty right. sure to learn to walk <laughs> yeah so let's try and embrace that but i think that failure with systems is more of that let's put a process around this so that we can protect our egos and realize we're fine we're just learning new skills the difference between mindset and skill set and i think i teach the separation of that with having that human experience better than some so they can really understand that it's just not about the class you take. It's about being embracing the skills we've taught you in the class you've taken to be able to move forward in both personal, professional, volunteer life, whatever it is. But that's tough because sometimes you get it, that touchy feely stuff can be painful. I have learned to have step a little of this, but I really think the bottom line is it's not what you say. It's how you make someone feel. Absolutely. And it's very hard to make that the priority. Yeah. So they feel good, even if it's bad news. That's a skill. Let me tell you. For sure. <laughs> For sure. What does the word empowerment mean to you? Ooh, hope offering trust in, for example, if we use empowering in my students, my whole idea of my students, I'm training them to leave me. My point as a step-parent was a, the child comes to you as codependent. We might move them to interdependent. Eventually we want them to be independent so they Uh don't need me. Whether a student, whether a friend, whether a colleague, people come into your life for a reason. Yeah. And the question is you keep them for a reason. But there are some, particularly my students, I'm training them to leave me. And that devastates me every time I see that. It's because I don't want my students to leave. 
But I remember that day when my mentor turned me on to, he goes, ah, the student has become the teacher. And I never thought I was ready. He goes, you're never going to think you're ready. And now look at you. My, my mentor just retired. He and I are still pretty tight. And it's really funny. But that I think is the whole point of empowering is letting people have that experience that now they have that baton and that gift. The fact that our elders, unfortunately, we have now become them. But that's just the circle of life. For be sure. able to prepare them so that when they get their trials and tribulations, we've prepared them well. And I subscribe to Stephen Brookfield, and he's the trying to create good citizenry. And I mm-hmm. think translated, create good humans so that they'll that's take it. care of us in our old age and they know how to take care of themselves. Beautiful. But we don't teach those skills, so we need nope. to do something about that. I'm we just do. Okay, we're going to jump into a little rapid fire section here. So the next okay. grouping of questions is just one, two, three word answer type thing, okay? Yep. How would you describe yourself in one word? Tenacious. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would it be? The refractive thinker. If you could teach the world one thing, what would it be? Failure. Fail faster, succeed sooner. I knew that was coming. (laughs) What is one thing you love about yourself that is not related to your physical appearance? My capacity to believe in people. Naive is what some would call it. (laughs) I still believe in happily ever after, even though the world tells me I'm more cynical that it doesn't exist. I still believe in it. What is your favorite self-care practice? Meditation. That concludes our rapid fire section. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> I love it. It's <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> what is one lesson your career has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? Oh, this one's going to be tough. I was a director senior level at in Albuquerque when I was at the radio station. And I remember one of my colleagues because of my appearance saying, hey, we've got the big brass coming in town. You need to put on that little black dress because you look so good in it. Wow. I am hoping that he didn't mean it the way I took it. From that Mm -hmm. point forward, I doubted whether or not I was hired for my looks or if I was hired for my skill. And for years after that, I doubted both. And that's where my insecurities, I think, started because that was the first time ever anyone had separated my appearance thinking that's why I was hired or I was the token. Because back in the day, there weren't a lot of females at the party, let alone at that level. And I had thought I earned it. I would like to think that I did and that it wasn't my, I was a model for a short time, that that wasn't the reason. But I remember that pivotal moment in time where it shook me for a while. And I should have gotten a mentor to help me process this. I've still looked at it as that's one person's opinion, but I was still at the table and there were others who believed that I earned it. I had self-doubt. That's the piece that needs to be in there is to calm those self-doubtings because we are our worst critics. But because that one comment that, I don't want to say it derailed me, but it certainly made me second guess for many years after that, future jobs. And I probably think that's why I earned my doctorate as a result of that, to be Mm -hmm. able to put to bed any question that I had the capacity to proof exactly but i think some of it was i had to prove it to myself and i never had the guts to go back to that guy and ask him what he meant by it i'm sure it was innocent that's the naive part of me i'd like to believe it was innocent but i know it shook me in my core and i never said a word from that moment forward i was always looking for confirmatory evidence that it was skill set not my looks that got Mm. me to where i was and that's a hard thing for some of us because we'd like it to be blind independent of gender, eye color, height, weight, anything that we just got to the party because we earned our right there. And so my question or my suggestion to your listeners is be careful what you say. 
it may be the most innocent remark that I'd like to believe it was off the cuff and he didn't mean anything by other than complimenting me on my look. But the way it came across and the way I internalized, I started to self-doubt. So words can hurt. Words can place doubt. Use them wisely. If you had the opportunity to sit down and have a one-hour conversation with one woman, any woman in the world, who would it be? I always thought it would be torn between Sandra Bullock and Margaret Thatcher. So I'm going to give you two. One from history who isn't alive and one who is because of both I admire them for very different reasons and for both being pioneers in their areas as females. Margaret Thatcher was absolutely amazing. I mean, the boys, she was part of the boys club because she made her presence known and she earned her right. And even the boys were a little intimidated by her. (laughs) But that's the part that I didn't want to have to be a man in a man's world. I wanted to be my strength in everyone's world. We're getting to that point, but she would be amazing. And I think I could just hear her smiling and just going, because <laughs> I do tend to intimidate both genders, mostly yeah. men, because they're not used to having such a strong woman. And I have to be careful to somehow put it in context. Sandra Bullock, I just love her mute variety. I love mm-hmm. her tenacity. I love the roles she's chosen. Not all of them have been stellar, but some of them have been really courageously challenging. She likes to expand. She's not like a Rocky Stallone, right? One character, one character. Yeah. No, she's standing there. And it's just some of the hell that woman has been through because I've watched her career. And I'm not a People magazine in there, so I don't focus on someone's life, but she's been through some trials. Those are the two, but I'd love to have lunch with either one of them. Obviously, Margaret Thatcher's dead, but I do the same <laughs> exercise with my students. And the people that I get that they want to do take to lunch, and I usually make it a historical person. It's hysterical. I mean, absolutely hysterical. So really good question and very telling. I love it. If you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Ah, that's the one thing that my friend has told me. I would say, buckle up, baby, and enjoy the ride. (laughs) I mean, now, because earlier I would have given myself a, don't do that, turn left, don't turn right. And now it's just, I am who I am, and I, good or bad, and that's judgment. But it's just, honey, you are in for the ride of your life. (laughs) Enjoy every minute of it instead of putting sour face. Because there are some times that I could have been happier and it wouldn't have lasted as long. So now it's a matter of, yeah, embrace all of it. It's all for us. So, yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> Lastly, Cheryl, if you were to deliver your last 30 second speech to the world, your corner of the world, your tribe, your people, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? What words of wisdom would you impart? I do this exercise with my students. I call it the legacy exercise. Is if you were going to be given a humanitarian road, what would your G sound like? And I've always looked at mine of a here lies Cheryl. She made a difference in the world. She will be fondly remembered as wife, mother, daughter, professor, friend, and colleague, always trying to make the world a better place. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Now let's see if I can make that happen. (laughs) You can, absolutely. You're making it happen. Uh, Cheryl, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me today and sharing all of your incredible wisdom, knowledge. It has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. You are a truly beautiful and inspirational human being, woman, and soul. I am so grateful to be connected to you and to have had this opportunity to sit down and speak with you. And I'm honored to have you as a member of the Empowerography community. So thank you for shining your bright, beautiful light out into the world through all the work you do. I appreciate you. Absolutely honored and thrilled, Brad. And I hope we will do more things that our paths will continue to cross. Uh, I'm sure we will. We will make that happen. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. Enjoy. Thank you. Once again, my name is Brad Walsh, host of your Empowerography podcast. Today, my guest has been Dr. Cheryl Lentz. She is known as the academic entrepreneur. She's a university professor, a TEDx speaker, 
an international best-selling author and a consultant. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Have a wonderful rest of your day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share with all your friends. You can find me at visuphoria.ca and follow me on Instagram at Empowerography Podcast and on Facebook at Empowerography. Please join me next time for another inspirational story from yet another amazing woman.